Daniel Gilbert is a psychology professor at Harvard University, and he wrote an article entitled, What You Don't Know Makes You Nervous. And he drew from the Gallup Healthways Wellbeing Index, which is a study that goes on year after year after year. And he stated that the index showed Americans are smiling less and worrying more than they were a year ago. That happiness is down and sadness is up. And he stated that the real problem in our culture today is not financial, despite what the media tends to focus on. It is not about money or not having enough of it, but it is something else that he labeled uncertainty. People don't know what's going to happen. Will I have a job next week? What about my health? What's ahead in the future for me? Professor Gilbert pointed to a Dutch experiment where some subjects were told in this experiment that they would be shocked intensely 20 times. That was one group. And then there was another group of people in this experiment who were told they would be shocked intensely three times and the other 17 times would be mild and they wouldn't, it wouldn't affect them at all. You know, I read these studies and I wonder who in the world submits to this stuff, right? <laughs> they must be poor. Yeah, man, they're probably paid to do this, right? So he, he, this Dutch experiment, they did this study. Which group do you think felt the most anxiety? Not the group that knew they were going to be shocked 20 times, but in terms of who, who perspired the most, whose heart rate went up, they, they had all of these things on them to test the anxiety level. It was the people who knew they were only going to be shocked three times, they just didn't know which times were, the shock was going to come. And Professor Gilbert says, that shows you that the real anxiety in life comes from uncertainty. That's what causes our unhappiness. Daniel Gilbert summarized his article this way, an uncertain future leaves us stranded in an unhappy present with nothing to do but wait. Don't you like to wait? Our national gloom is real enough, he said, but it isn't a matter of insufficient funds. It's a matter of insufficient certainty. How can we live well when we face so much uncertainty in this world? As Christians, we say to each other, and we have sung this morning, trust God. Good advice, obviously. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. I mean, these are all statements of faith, right? To trust God. But you know as well as I do that it is often easier to trust God when we know what we need to trust him for. 
than when we don't know what we need to trust him for. Our faith struggle rises with uncertainty. When we don't know the outcome, that's when we struggle the most to trust God. We're not even sure what we're supposed to trust him for. Not knowing is often worse than knowing the worst. We live in an age, obviously, of uncertainty. Jobs are uncertain. The economy is uncertain. Health is uncertain. Money is uncertain. All of these things are uncertain. So how can we live well with so much uncertainty? And that's what Solomon is addressing in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning. And he gives us some practical principles to help us cope in times of uncertainty. And the first principle he gives us is to diversify your investments because the future is uncertain. And now I sound like a financial planner, don't I? Boy, this is basic financial planning advice, isn't it? We'll take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Nobody knows what disaster is going to come, or what misfortune we will face in the future with our assets, all that we have. Three times in chapter 11, Solomon repeats the fact that we don't know what is going to happen. Three times. And one time he says, we don't even understand what is coming. So our future is uncertain. Tomorrow's headlines could change everything. The business could go under. Things change fast. Perhaps you've experienced some life-changing crises yourself, and you're left feeling shocked and confused by the new circumstances that you find yourself in. The future is uncertain. It can happen to any of us at any time. So, Solomon gives us advice to prepare for that kind of uncertainty, and his advice is diversify. And he uses a proverbial expression to teach us this lesson. Cast your bread on the waters, he says. It's a business proverb that was used by merchants in the ancient world who would take their bread across the sea and sell it abroad. This was what we would call outsourcing today, right? They would take their bread on the sea and ship it out to be sold somewhere else. And Solomon ties this proverb to this whole concept of business diversification. Divide your investments, he goes on to say, among seven or even eight business ventures because you never know how each will turn out. You just don't know. So divide. We have a modern proverb It's a little more mundane than this, but we use it often enough in the same way. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Because 
You might drop the basket, something might happen, and there go all your eggs. So diversify. You say, Dave, I don't have a whole lot to diversify. (laughs) Well, I can empathize with that. (laughs) But the principle really is, is a life principle, not just a money principle. It's important there, it's certainly a a biblical concept, a good healthy principle, but it's a life principle that he's talking about. And we can diversify in all areas of life, not just money. It's not just there that we should apply the principle of dividing our talents, our time, our energy, our gifts, our resources, all of life should follow this principle. They should be invested in others, in many settings, in people, so that then our needs in turn are met by all of those that we invest in too. There was an ancient Egyptian proverb that many commentators point to because it's so similar to this one. And the ancient Egyptian proverb said this, Do a good deed and throw it in the river. When it dries up, you'll find it. Do a good deed and throw it in the river. When the river dries up, you'll find your good deed. The point is that we invest in doing good deeds. We do good for others without expecting a return on that investment necessarily. In other words, we cast our bread on the water. But what happens later in life is that the return we receive is priceless as others give back to us in our need. What goes around comes around. So don't just live for yourselves and hoard because disaster can come but do good for others because one day you will need others to do good for you invest in your family invest in your children invest in your friends invest in your church diversify your gifts diversify your energy your good deeds among many, because then many will be there for you when your time comes. Ralph Warner, author of Get a Life, You Don't Need a Million to Retire Well, urges that people looking toward retirement think about more than money. In his interview of various contented retirees, he said he couldn't find a single major correlation between retirement success and money. By working a little less, you're really investing in yourself, in your family. Money is not the most important factor in retirement, he said. And then he summarized the top five factors. The top factor for those who were satisfied and fulfilled in retirement was not money. It was health. That makes sense. Don't have as much control over that. But health was the top factor. The second factor was interest or engagement with life and new things. You have a reason to live. The third factor was friends. The fourth factor was family relationships. And way down at fifth was money. 
You know, the thing is that when we hear about all of this, we hear always about money. And that is the least important of the top five factors to a satisfactory, well-lived life in retirement. What are you investing in? The bank account or life? You know, there's not much sadder than arriving at retirement with lots of money, no friends, no family, nobody to share life with. So what are we investing in? Diversify. Second principle, avoid the paralysis of excessive analysis. Verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. So the second proverbial couplet here in this series of principles starts with some agricultural realities. I mean, the rain clouds come, and they dump their rain, whether we like it or not. The windstorm blows down the tree, and where the tree lands is where it lands. These are the realities of life for the farmer. You know, if a, if a farmer wakes up in the morning, and he checks the, the wind, and he, you know, decides not to sow. You know, it's a little windy, so I'm going to wait and do it tomorrow. Or if he looks at the clouds and he says, well, it looks rainy, so I'm not going to harvest. We'll do it tomorrow. If he does that long enough, what happens? Neither the sowing or the harvesting ever gets done. I like the way the New Living Bible paraphrases this verse. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. They just never get around to doing anything. The time to act is rarely perfect in life. And we often have to decide and act and function before we have all the information we want. That is life in an uncertain world. Now, I'm an analytical kind of guy. So I like to have all the information I can get before I have to make a significant choice. I like to have all the pros and cons, all the facts, all the data, and lay it all out there, you know, and have everything out there so I can make an important decision. How many times in life do you ever get there, right? <laughs> but that's what I want to have. I can remember my final year in seminary before I graduated in 1984. I was, uh, I was having to make some decisions, you know. Eventually you graduate from school and you've you got to do something, right? <laughs> it's too bad because it was a lot of fun. But you've got to do something. So I was talking with a church in Massachusetts. I was looking at teaching opportunities on the mission field. I was... Uh, considering going on for my doctorate at that time. And I was talking with a tiny little Bible college in South Portland, Maine. And I had all of this, and I was laying out all the debt, and I nearly drove my wife nuts. You know? I couldn't make up my mind. 
well, here are all this, here's all these facts, here's all this stuff, here's all this data. My, my wife, Janie, was basically, get on with it. Make a choice, why don't you? This is driving me crazy. Have you ever struggled with choices like that, decisions? The truth is, we want all the information. We want it all to be perfectly laid out before we have to make that choice, make that move, make, take that action. And the reality of life is that it rarely happens that way. We have to act before we can foresee the future. We have to make a choice before we have all the facts. And that's often the way it is with God because God is teaching us to trust him in that process. God doesn't give us all the information we want, but God does give us all the information we need to make that choice as we walk with him. And if we, if we persist in waiting for the perfect time and the perfect information, we will never get anything done because what happens? We become paralyzed with all of our analysis. We never get around to actually making a decision to get on with it for the Lord. So we have to step out on faith. We have to trust God with what we know and all the uncertainty that we don't know. We have to act before we have all the data if we want to live well on this earth. All right, third principle. Work hard even though you don't understand God's plan. Verse 5. Third couplet. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Three mysteries he mentions in these verses. We cannot know the path of the wind that it will take across the land. <laughs> wow. I mean, just ask the folks down south this week, right? With all the tornadoes. It's a mystery. We cannot foresee these kinds of things very well. Jesus, by the way, may well have had this verse in mind in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. And he says, you don't know the way the wind goes in this world. So you don't know the Spirit's work in this world. The second mystery is the mystery of a child in the womb. Now, certainly, we have unlocked many mysteries, I suppose, if you could say, in terms of, of pregnancy and the child in the womb. But I dare say most of us really don't understand that mystery very well. It is such an incredible thing that God does in the formation of new life. I, as parents, I'll bet when, when that time came for birth, it is just an incredible event because we don't really understand the process that God is doing. The third mystery is the mystery of God's plan for our lives in this world. God is the creator of this universe. God is at work in this universe. 
We can see the results of God's work in human lives, but we cannot always see what God is doing before he does it. And we don't even understand why God did what he did. In the fabric of our lives and this universe. Why did God allow this to happen? Why this set of circumstances? Why this situation? We don't understand the whys of God. Those are the mysteries of God's plan for our lives. So what do we do with all that mystery? Solomon says, well, what you do is you work hard. You work hard. You sow in the morning, and you're not lazy at night either. You work both ends. We have no idea what will prosper and what will fail because we don't understand God's ways. But we trust him, and we stay productive, and we stay busy, and we function because we never know how God will use our work in his plan. And that's the way to live well in this life. A 2005 article in National Geographic identified three regions of the world where people have consistently shown long lifespans. And then Dan Buettner led a follow-up study with his research team on the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, because on this particular little peninsula in Costa Rica, many, many people lived into their 90s, many lived into their hundreds in this little group of people. And so they did a research study with their team of researchers to find the factors that led to not only a long life age-wise, but also a satisfied and and productive and healthy and happy life. And certainly there were genetics, certainly there was diet, sun, um, water, food, all of those factors. But they identified a set of factors that they felt made this peninsula so, so healthy and productive, people with such well-lived lives. They, first of all, he said, they, uh, they had a sense of Purpose. The people on the Nicoya Peninsula had a strong sense of purpose. They feel needed and want to contribute to a greater good in society. Secondly, they choose to focus on the family. Persons over 100 years of age in this region tend to still live with their families. So children or grandchildren provide support and a sense of purpose and belonging in the fabric of their lives. They have strong social networks. Their neighbors visit frequently. And they all seem to know the value of listening to one another and laughing and appreciating what they have and appreciating one another. They know the value of hard work. They even manage to find joy in everyday physical chores. Even the folks in their 90s or their 100s have productive work they do every day in the family structure. And they understand and appreciate their historical roots and spiritual traditions. They have a spiritual dynamic that undergirds their lives, the researchers said. You know what? Our fragmented society in America could learn an awful lot from these poor people on the Nicoya Peninsula. 
because we lead such isolated, fragmented lives many times. And it leads to a life not lived well. Fourth principle this morning. Enjoy each day of your life, even as old age dims your eyes. (laughs) My eyes may be dimming this morning, but I see some looks (laughs) going around. (laughs) Getting older is not something we want to acknowledge, but look at what he says in the next couplet, verses 7 and 8. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun... How many amens there, right? Indeed, if a man should live many, many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Now, you have to understand something here. The expression days of darkness in the ancient Middle East referred to death. And preceding death was the gradual creep of darkness coming over a man or a woman as he aged or she aged. And you can look ahead at chapter 12 and verses 2 and 3, where we read how our eyes will grow dim as we look out the windows in our later years of life. (laughs) In fact, next Sunday we're going to examine this extended description of old age in chapter 12. Isn't that a good reason to come back next Sunday? Aren't you excited this morning? But he has this extended description of old age and what it means to grow old in life. And one of those descriptions is that our eyes grow dim as we look out the windows. And darkness gradually creeps over us. Now, we don't like to talk about aging. We don't like to think about aging. This is a youth-oriented culture, after all. We don't want to admit we're getting older. In fact, we tend to think of ourselves as younger than we really are. A woman was sitting in the waiting room for her first appointment with a new dentist. She noticed his diploma hanging there on the wall, and it had his full name on the diploma, like they do. She thought, wow, I know that name. There was a guy in my high school class with that name. I wonder if it's the same guy, because I had a big crush on him when I was in high school. Could it be the same guy? But when she went into her appointment with this new dentist, she quickly discarded the idea because the new dentist was overweight, balding, white hair, just couldn't be the guy. He's way too old to have been my classmate, she said. Still, after he examined her teeth, she said, did you happen to attend Morgan Park High School? Yes, he said, I did. When did you graduate, she asked. 1969, he replied. Why do you ask? Well, she says, you were in my class. Really, he said. Looking at her a little more closely, he said, what class did you teach? Ouch. (laughs) I was driving through town the other day here in Gorham, and I I came up to the intersection down here, and there was this this great jet black Corvette at the corner. 
And so as I pulled around the corner, I looked, and my first thought as I looked into the car was, uh, was surprise because I thought to myself, well, it's an old guy driving this thing. And then I had this disturbing thought. He's probably about my age. <laughs> my grandfather, when he was 92 years old, he had to go into the nursing home because he was recovering from a hip problem. And so I visited him in the nursing home, and I said, well, Grandpa, how do you like it here? Well, he says, it's okay, but there's an awful lot of old people here. He's 92! <laughs> He's probably older than most of them there. But, you know, there's an awful lot of old people here. I'm stuck with a lot of old people. We just have this tendency not to want to face the reality of our age. Solomon won't let us live in denial about our aging process as we come to the end of this book. So next Sunday we'll have to talk about that a little more. He's going to hit us hard in chapter 12, teaching us to face up to the fact that we're growing older, whether we like it or not, and what are we going to do with it? And his advice to all of us as we grow older is right here in this couplet. He says, rejoice in all your days. Rejoice in how many of them? All your days, even as you get along into many, many years. Not some of them. Not those days that happened way back when. Rejoice in all your days through the many, many years of your life. The darkness of death, he says, is emptiness and futility. And the days may be creeping up on us. Now, remember, he's not talking about eternity here. He's not factoring in eternal life here. He's talking about life on this earth in Ecclesiastes, and that's why he says the darkness of death is futility and emptiness. For the Christian, of course, we live forever with the Lord. But in terms of this life, It is futility and emptiness. And he tells us to enjoy each day of our lives as we grow older because we never know how much time we have left. Enjoy today. He's given it to you. Live with that sense of rejoicing every day of your life, no matter how old you get, no matter how dim the eyes get. When Alexander Oakes, age 21, walked across the graduation platform at Fort Hayes State University to accept her diploma in 2007, the next person in line behind her at graduation was her 95-year-old grandmother. Nola Oakes graduated in 2007. She became the oldest college graduate that year, 95 years of age. When her husband had died way back in 1972, she began taking courses to pass the time, and that spring, in the spring of 2007, she finished her coursework. When asked about the achievement, Nola said, I don't dwell on my age. It might limit what I can do at 95. As long as I have my mind and health, it's just a number. General studies major with an emphasis in history. She was a 
an eyewitness to many of the events that the students were learning in the textbooks. When they studied the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, she'd lived through it, and she could describe to her fellow students what it felt like to put the wet blankets over the windows to keep the dust that was pelting the windows from entering the house. What are her plans now? Well, after graduation, she may travel or take a few more courses, but after that, I'm going to seek employment on a cruise ship as a storyteller, she said, smiling. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Fifth principle, have fun when you are young without wasting your life. Verses 9 and 10. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, during your youth, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your, your eyes. You know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things, so remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So young people... Pursue the desires of your heart and whatever sounds fulfilling in life. Grab the zip lines of life and go for it, is what he says. When you are young, that's the time to live life to the fullest. Youth is the time when our energy is at its highest level. So if you can't find fulfillment during those years... When will you find satisfaction and fulfillment as your body ages and life takes hold with all of its responsibilities? Rab, a Jewish teacher of the third century, wrote, Man will have to give account for all that he saw and did not enjoy. God will hold us to account for all that we see and do not enjoy of what he gives to us. As we grow older, we tend to think that advice is rather dangerous, right? Get serious, we say to our young people. Get focused. Go straight. Have a goal. Grow up. And Solomon says just exactly the opposite. Don't show this to your, your teens, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, somebody says. <laughs> Architect Frank Lloyd Wright once told of an incident that seemed insignificant at the time in his life, but had a very profound influence on him. He was nine years old that winter, and he went for a walk with his uncle across the snow-covered fields in their, their back yard. And they walked across this big field, and when they got to the other side of the snow-covered field, the, the uncle turned to him. His uncle was a very serious, very purposeful man. He turned to him, and he said, look, look back at the tracks. And he had his nine-year-old son look back at those tracks, and he said, let this be a lesson to you. Look at those tracks. You see my tracks? They're going straight across the field to my destination. Now look at your tracks. They run from fence post to tree to bird's nest to this and that all over the field. Let that be a lesson to you. Frank Lloyd Wright said, 
it was. It was a lesson to him, all right. He said, I determined right then not to miss most things in life as my uncle had. I was going to live life. Now Solomon would like that idea because that's essentially what he's saying here. It's good advice. But Solomon does not stop there. So young people don't stop there either. All right? Have fun when you are young without wasting your life. See, there's another side to this whole thing. And Solomon warns youth to remember that all of these things will ultimately bring God's evaluation on life. We do face God's judgment. And then he says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. So young people, say yes to fun and fulfillment and opportunities and challenges, absolutely. But also say no to some things. Say no to whatever will cause vexation, frustration, guilt for your heart and pain for your body. See, God will judge us in the end. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, he's going to continue the theme when he says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. So remember that. Some choices you make as young people will bring pain to your body in later years. Some choices you make in your youth will bring guilt and regret and frustration and vexation in life. So you've got to say no to those things. Even as you go for it in the opportunities and challenges of your youth. I grew up, uh, I was a Yankees fan, sorry. And uh, it was because my grandfather and grandmother lived on Long Island, and so whenever we were home from the mission field, we would be on Long Island, and they all, he was a big Yankees fan, so they always had the Yankees playing, days of Mel Stottlemyre and all of those guys. But uh, at the very end of his career, Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle was an incredible baseball player whose career was cut short because of alcoholism. And uh, Jane Levy, in, uh, in her story of his last press conference, which occurred on July 11, 1995, he was standing there giving this press conference as he was dying by that point. His career had long since gone, been done. His tracksuit hung on his frame. He looked like death, she says. And he said to the news people all gathered there, God gave me a great body and an ability to play baseball, he said. God gave me everything, and I just blew it off. And he did. He was an incredible ball player. What would be remembered, she said, most from that news conference was his plea to young people. 
I'd like to say to the kids out there, he said, if you're looking for a role model, this is a role model. Don't be like me. A reporter asked Mantle if he had signed a donor card. Everything I've got is worn out, he said. Although I've heard people say they'd like to have my heart, it's never been used. How tragic. One of the most gifted athletes in American history. How tragic. So young people, have fun when you are young. But don't waste your life in things that bring pain and regret and guilt later in life. For that is emptiness and your youth is fleeting. How can we live well when we face so much uncertainty in life? By making wise choices. They matter. By applying the wisdom of God's word to our daily lives, by following the Lord by faith. And when we do that, we will be able to say each day of our lives, it is well with my soul. Let's sing it. Hymn number 493. It is well with my soul. Turn in your hymnals there, and let's stand as we sing. And I trust this is your expression of faith this morning. It is well with my soul. Let's stand.